News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the nonprofit newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel here with Dr. Christina Greer and Katie Onan. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hey, so soon you'll hear Katie and Chrissy talking about the city council redistricting process, which had a big snag last week when uh, the latest maps were narrowly voted down by the commissioners running that process. With redistricting chair Dennis Walcott talking with them about what happened, why he says it was indeed a, quote, surprise, and what's next. And then we'll be talking with Politico's Joe Anuda, who's reported extensively on the process and City Hall's lobbying that might be the reason for those surprise no votes. But first, here's just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York. Jails Commissioner Louis Molina fighting off a possible federal takeover of the troubled system, told subordinates to make sure that a prisoner who had a heart attack was, quote, off the department's count, unquote, the New York Times reported, hours before that prisoner was given a compassionate release. So when Elbert Robert Poindexter was taken off of life support, he wasn't registered as another death in custody as the body count of prisoners has gone up on this administration's watch. Then Mayor Eric Adams returned this week from a trip to Puerto Rico in the Dominican Republic in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona, along with uh, many other electeds here from the city. His message was one of support, financial support from the city, the city's Office of Emergency Management sending down a team to help, and the city putting pressure on FEMA and the feds to do more. When something plays out on the streets of a country outside of here, it plays out on the streets of New York, the mayor said, while taking a swipe of Kansas for lacking a brand. Quote, New York has a brand. It is a brand, and that brand means diversity. That brand means we care. That brand means that we are compassionate, and that's what we did. And speaking of things in other countries playing out in the streets of New York, the city this week began building large tents at Orchard Beach's parking lot that are going to be used as temporary housing for more than 13,000 asylum seekers so far, and more coming, who've made their way to NYC. This housing is controversial because of where it is and what it is, but the mayor's defended it, saying the city's been left with few other options as the shelters have been inundated with new arrivals. These tents are meant to be used for only a few days, and the mayor pointed out this week that the migrants who are going there also have the option, asylum seekers, of going straight to the city's path intake centers. But he also said the tents are, quote, not a shelter issue, unquote, and thus are outside of New York's legal mandate to provide shelter to anyone who applies for it immediately, pretty much, and the rules that apply to that system. So the Coalition for the Homeless and Legal Aid are talking about legal action, but unless and until the courts intervene, the mayor's calling the shots here, and those include a tent city in a parking lot where the usual rules don't apply. And with that, here's Dennis Walcott to talk about the new city council maps. His group is in charge of drawing. Let's jump right in. Today we have Dennis Walcott, who's the former chancellor of the New York City Public Schools and the current president and CEO of the Queens Public Library. He was also tapped this year to lead the redistricting process to redraw the new city council lines, a once a decade effort. 
There was a lot of backlash when the maps were first released this summer. And then last week, the board voted against the newly proposed maps, extending this process. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us at FAQ NYC. We're so happy to have you here. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Queen's in the house, Katie, Chrissy. Queen's is in the house. Big time. Proud of it. We are. Um, Hollis Queens represent, represent. So, Dennis, two weeks ago, your commission's spokesperson flatly told the city's Heidi Chu that the commission voting down its own maps was, quote, not even prospect, unquote. A week ago, the commission voted down its own maps. And we got to ask, what happened? What's happening? (laughs) And where do we go from here? So let me lay out what happened. And then I think we did a very uh, comprehensive job as far as both public engagement. We had over 10,000 responses uh, from the public, both in person, emails, people who submitted their own maps. We did public hearings uh, in the five boroughs two times, matter of fact. And we had a lot of input. And the commissioners had a lot of dialogue. And as you know, going through the mapping process is a very complex process. One, we have to adhere to the New York City Charter, obviously, the Constitution. And then voting rights implications and hold all that in, and also dealing with deviation of a 5% above or below a certain number of residents in a particular district. Within having 630,000 new people put into New York City. So those individuals are in certain neighborhoods, yet we still maintain the same number of city council seats, 51. So all that goes into the discussion and the mapping process, and we thought we did a comprehensive job. Some of the commissioners uh, decided that they wanted to vote no for their own individual reason. And as a result of that, the maps were voted down eight to seven because the process is and will be that once we agree on the next iteration of maps, we submit it to the city council. The city council has three weeks to review it. Either they accept it or they put it back to us and have different notes on what they want to address. And then we have to go back out for public hearings some more, and we are in a very tight timeline right now. And as a result of that, we have a lot of work in front of us, and that work will start with public engagement, listening to the uh, commissioners and the map drawers together as far as what the issues are. And then come up with a plan that really will allow the new city council district to be put in place, allowing the council members then to run for office or others to run for office uh, next year. And that's what we have to do over the next several days. So, Dennis, um, I know you just mentioned the sort of the next round of community engagement, or I guess a re-up of that. If you just wanted to, so we know, I know it's um, Thursday and Friday, if you want to just tell for our listeners. So... Um, on Thursday uh, from 5 to 8 p.m. and Friday from 10 to uh, 1, we will be doing our mapping sessions. And what we decided to do this time is open it up to the public so the public will be able to access exactly what's going on and the discussions back and forth with the purpose of really getting into the nitty gritty of how it take shape in developing maps for the entire city. I mean, someone described it as a Rubik's Cube and that every little piece that you change has an impact in another area. And there's a domino effect for the entire city. So I know there's been a lot of debate around a particular district or particular borough and what it means. And as a result of the public engagement process that we 
uh, had in place over the last period of time, we made a number of changes to the draft maps that were released in July. And those changes were citywide for the benefit of one staying within the 5% deviation of uh, residents, but also uh, to meet voting rights requirements. In addition to that, the public feedback that we got. All that now will play itself into the next round of discussions as far as the mapping on Thursday and Friday that will take place. And then also trying to drill down on some of the concerns or issues that individual commissioners had with the prior map request for approval. So we'll see what happens. If we could just go back to that vote, you know, the vote last week. Um, I know with anything, whether it's a student council election or, or, or a council bill passing, there's an effort made to make sure that you have the votes. There was reporting that, you know, the night before that there was some perhaps intervention from City Hall and City Hall officials to sway the votes either way because the mayor appoints seven people, yourself included, and, the, and then the two members of the, the speaker and the minority leader appoint people. But were you surprised when those no votes came in? And I mean, was there some efforts on, on your part or the team's part to at least check, like, what are we going on this? Which way are we going? What's your, what, is it, what is it looking like for you all, for the commissioners? So you asked a couple of questions, really. One, surprised, yes. Uh, we thought and I thought we had the yes votes. I knew there would be certain no votes, and I knew that going in. Uh, but I thought we had the majority of yes votes, and people were pretty satisfied, I thought, with the process that we uh, put in place and the dialogue that happened back and forth between the commissioners, and we were ready to go. And so what happened the night before, you know, I'll leave that up to the individual commissioners who voted no. I know that I voted yes because I was very comfortable with it, and there were seven people who voted yes. Uh, But the reality is those individual commissioners had their own reasons. Uh, and I just have to abide by that. And that's why we're in the position that we're in right now. So, Dennis, you also mentioned on WNYC um, that you and your staff have continued to speak to various appointees about some of their concerns. And so what have most of the concerns been focused on? Well, I mean, at the hearing itself, they talked about Uh, One commissioner mentioned about hearing feedback from the Dominican community around representation. So we're trying to make sure we get more specific information on uh, what that actually meant. Um, One commissioner talked about uh, the issue of um, going into uh, different communities and having more time. And so we're trying to find out exactly what that means. So each one had their own issues. Um, and again, we're trying to drill down so that way when we start our discussion on Thursday, we can have more concrete answers to those individuals um, because we have a voting rights expert who reviews the maps to make sure uh, we are in a position of satisfying the voting rights requirements and district by district, borough by borough. And so we've done that type of analysis. And matter of fact, we had our uh, racial block voting expert really give a public report around that as well. So we really wanted to get more information on exactly what it meant. And so tomorrow when we start the engagement process again and going through the mapping process, we'll hear more detailed information, hopefully from those individuals as far as what those concerns were and how we could address them. 
So when it comes to public engagement, and again, uh, you know, if you're a member of the public and you want to share your concerns or your thoughts about the maps, but then maybe you're reading articles that say a phone call from someone from City Hall maybe sway to vote. Do you find that, do you think that might be discouraging for members of the public? And I mean, what do you want to say to them to ensure that this is not something that might change due to political interference and that they have a say? So we're still listening. We still want that feedback. Uh, I'm listening. And that's why this whole process is still going on. We have a legal requirement to make sure we engage the public, but also legal requirement to put new maps in place for the upcoming city council election, as you indicated earlier. I mean, this happens every 10 years, so it's a very serious responsibility. And I, I think the public can feel confident that a lot of what they talked about in the prior meetings and the prior public sessions were incorporated into these maps. I can tell you exactly, um, borough by borough, as far as concerns that were raised, and not all were addressed. Uh, but at the same time, a good portion of them were address, addressed. Uh, in the Bronx, I remember folks talking about Kingsbridge. Uh, in Brooklyn, I remember people talking about uh, Canarsie and the district of Canarsie. In Manhattan, uh, folks talked about Hell's Kitchen and the boundaries of Hell's Kitchen. In Queens, which that public session lasted to 12.30 in the morning. And we had a number of people who testified and they were testifying about the jump over from Manhattan into uh, District 26 in Queens and what that meant. Uh, people talked about in Queens what we shouldn't have done, but we did. And then we corrected it is the splitting of Rochdale Village in Queens. Those types of things we incorporated so the public should feel confident that we listened. I know there are concerns raised and a number of commissioners or several commissioners talked about trying to keep Staten Island whole and people talking about, well, people are picking on Staten Island. It wasn't people picking on Staten Island per se. It's just dealing with the 5% deviation of uh, uh, residents who have to be citywide. It's not just around Staten Island. And people said, well, there used to be 10% deviation. And then the governor signed a law back in October, making it a 5% deviation. We should have gone back to Albany. You know, I reached out to see if Albany had any interest and Albany wasn't going back in session, not for this especially. And, you know, they resisted going back in session when they broke. Uh, so that wasn't a reality. I mean, these things we tried to factor in and be sensitive to individuals and not everyone got what they wanted, but a lot of the changes that the public talked about, we heard and we factored into our discussion and included in our maps. So the public should feel confident that Unfortunately, this little bump happened and it has a major impact as far as timing and that we have to be very tight now uh, to adhere to the timing requirements that we have to face because we have a responsibility. And as I've said publicly a couple of times now, the one thing we don't want to have happen is a special mask to be put in place. Then no one wins for that. And we have an obligation to do our job. And I'm confident, I mean, these commissioners, including me, we're all public servants one way or the other, and we're volunteering our time. You have lawyers, you have a retired federal judge, Monsignor, you have union people, all who are part of the discussion. And that's what we want to have is that open discussion where people now will be able to hear about the mapping process and the uniqueness of the mapping process. And I know all of you are very aware that from one area to another area, 
there are major impacts as far as decisions are made. And we want to be extremely responsible in hearing what people have to say and have to say, and then moving from there so we can submit our maps to the city council. And just so we know, and I, I believe it's December, but what is the sort of drop-dead deadline for these approved maps? December 7th. I mean, de- December 7th. I mean, there's a requirement, uh, and we've laid out, and we can get it to you as well, a very specific deadline timeline uh, to our commissioners that we have to follow. And so we really are in that tight window right now where we have to get the information to the city council. Because again, the city council has three weeks to respond. So that stretches it out even more so. And then if they say no go and put it back to us, then we have to go back out again for public hearings. So we're in a very tight window. And our goal is to um, have a vote again uh, next week, because also we want to be very respectful uh, for the Jewish holidays. And so Yom Kippur is next week. And so we'll be going out, I think, October 6th for a vote on the mapping process that we'll go through on Thursday and Friday. So, Dennis, um, some council members have suggested widening the council beyond the 51 members. And I always talk to my students about, you know, transaction costs and conforming costs. We always talk about, you know, the House of Representatives being locked in at 435, 435 members, but that was locked in in 1911. So the question of should we expand it since the country has expanded? Similarly with New York, and as we've grown, we've got 51 council members. And you said that this is something that the charter revision should look at. What do you think will happen by making the council bigger? Well, again, it's not our purview within this commission to really opine about that or to really deal with that. That's something, as you indicated, uh, that's a charter discussion. But I think what you can do is take a look at maybe closer representation by the people to their elected officials. And I think that's something that's extremely important. So, for example, uh, there are several neighborhoods that felt detached from their council member because they may have been on the other side. And I say this for your benefit, of Queens Boulevard. And <laughs> on one side of Queens Boulevard and the representatives, majority district is on the other side. And, you know, that's some of the argument from Staten Island as well. And I hear that. But again, it allows us to then have people who are closer to the elected officials or the elected officials who are closer to the people. And that type of development of relationships can be a lot stronger. Uh, we had people in the Bronx who said, well, we're the Van Ness neighborhood. That jumps off the page to me because people came out and talked about, OK, we need to be folded in a little differently as far as our district is concerned. That to me is extremely important. So having your representative closer and the relationship uh, with that representative is important. But again, with the boundaries that we're in right now, um, the variables we have to deal with and talking about 5% deviation, I mean, that's really getting into the weeds. And I always like to tease that my college professors would say, who the heck is this talking about deviations? Is this the same guy who took (laughs) statistics in my class and I didn't have any hope for him at all? I mean, that 5% deviation really plays a major role as far as the overall city and each district and what it means to have that above or below a 5% range. And especially when you have some areas like Manhattan that have higher numbers of uh, district uh, residents and other areas like in Staten Island that are below that. And how do we equalize that? And that's all the variables that we have to factor in. So, you know, we're gonna hear alternatives tomorrow, Thursday and Friday. 
And then we'll see what we can come up with that satisfies, hopefully, the supermajority of the commissioners. Okay, so before Katie closes this out, I just, I could not let your comment go by, especially since you're a school's chancellor. So shout out to all the teachers, because what we do, I always tell people, Dennis, you know, my job as an educator is all I do is just throw out seeds. Some of them germinate and grow by the end of the semester. Some take a few months, some take a few years, some take a few decades. So I know that all of your professors and teachers who are listening to this podcast right now are like, you know what? That was a seed that was planted many, many moons ago, and somehow it has sprouted, and you're now talking about standard deviations. So this is the beauty of education. Let me just add on to, to your timeline when you say a few decades. Try like five decades. <laughs> I mean, let's deal with reality here because teachers are patient people. I agree. You know me. I love teachers. I think teachers do the greatest job in the world and they're unsung heroes. We really thank them all the time. And you're right. I mean, things take a while to understand. So when you get into the conversation around deviation, it's something that really plays a major role in what we're dealing with right now. And that's really getting to the weeds, but it also has such a major impact. And those are the unique challenges. So, you know, I understand the, and this is not my role as chair, to get into, you know, the sound bites and all that. I'm not into the sound bites. I'm into making sure that our commission works and serves the people and serves its role that we were appointed to do. And that's the goal, not into the sound bites of one versus the other. Uh, the reality is we have a responsibility to do, and I'm confident that our commissioners will come together and do that job in a responsible way. Oh, plus you're at my alma mater as well. So <laughs> Fordham. That's right. Go Rams. Go Rams. Well, yeah. I, got, I got waitlisted at Fordham, but not that I'm bitter, but um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, I'm not a test taker. Anyway, our closer is actually, you know, you, with this engagement, I think you said 10,000 people engaged during the process, virtually in person, given the sort of wonkiness of this, right? I think trying to explain what this process is to an average New Yorker, they're like, oh, my council member. Okay. Were you surprised by this engagement? And, and I guess, were there anything that's, were there any other, I know you mentioned some things in other neighborhoods, what kind of stood out to you as a surprise concern from some of the New Yorkers you spoke with? So to answer the surprise part, not really, because the staff did an outstanding job. I can't say uh, enough positive things about the staff. I mean, we got the information out. We were in local newspapers. We did publicity. We took out ads. You name it. We were out there doing it. We went to the communities. So we had engagement staff going out to the communities. And so as a result of that, that number really jumps off the page because it's directly correlated to the work that the people did. Um, what stood out to me, you know, I think the passion of people to neighborhoods. I mean, it just reminds us that while New York City is now, what, 8.8 .8 million and probably even higher than that, it's really a city of small neighborhoods. And people are really connected to their neighborhoods. And so people actually charted, charted buses to the community hearings. Um, we were up at the Schomburg and there were like buses of people from different parts of Manhattan. I mean, People really felt this strongly. They heard about it. And then the beauty of the way we put it in place with the virtual system as well, where people could testify, is that you didn't have to be from a particular borough or a particular district to testify. So people say we had our Manhattan hearing, using that as an example. People from Staten Island could 
uh, get in virtually and testify. And all those testimonies were included in our review process. And our public testimony part is still open. And so I know there were some districts that, um, you know, didn't necessarily come out in numbers where maybe they should have. So we're starting to hear from them now. One other final piece that was somewhat surprising because overall, elected officials have been hands-off. They have not reached out to us directly. As I indicated to someone, I have not heard from the mayor directly at all. Uh, But council members at one point didn't think they could testify and be a part of this. And we said, no, time out. Your citizens definitely come out to the testimony. And so we had a number of council members who came out and testified for the community. And then people were really willing to work as far as large groups that came out. So, I mean, we would have groups that came out with 30, 40 people, and they were sensitive, though, to some of the timing issues. So they worked it out with our staff where four of the individuals from that large group, say, would testify on behalf of the group. So the collaboration and cooperation between staff and the community uh, were great. And then people were always respectful. I mean, you know, we're used to, hey, I'm the chancellor, former chancellor. So I'm used to public hearings where you have 3,000 people yelling at you and not happy. I mean, that's not new for me. But people came out and were always respectful of the process itself. And that's not surprising, but it's important as far as the dialogue, as far as civic engagement, as far as listening and hearing and processing. So all that went into where we were and hopefully where we will be at the end of this next step. Well, Dennis, we want to thank you so much for joining us here at FAQ NYC. We've been talking to Dennis Walcott, former chancellor of New York City Public Schools and the current president and CEO of the Queens Public Library. Queens Public Library. (laughs) Can't say enough about it. Doing great stuff. We had a food pantry uh, this past week and we've been doing food pantries in Southeast Queens that have been extremely helpful to people. I mean, library that I grew up with. I won't put you in my age category, but the libraries <laughs> that I grew up with are totally different than the libraries that exist now. Really, one other sidebar note real quickly. So when I was at Central yesterday, Central Queens Library, uh, we have IDNYC there, and the line is wrapped around the library uh, as far as people coming for IDs because these are the migrant individuals who are coming into our city right now, and they're coming to libraries and other points to get their IDs. So we are there to serve the community and it's been really an important role that our Queens Public Libraries and all the libraries in New York City play as far as the engagement with the public. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you Thank all. you, Dennis. All right, peace. Joe Nuda is a reporter for Politico New York. He wrote last week about the ways City Hall has gotten involved in these new council maps, including Chief of Staff Menasha Shapiro calling and texting commissioners the night before the meeting to, quote unquote, torpedo the maps, which was a successful effort. Uh, So, Joe, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Our first question, of course, is what is going on actually with these maps? And you want to talk a little bit about um, those. I think you wrote in the copy that it was after hours texts. I don't know what after hours meant. Um, Uh, More about that lobbying. After, after normal business hours, we'll say, um, yeah, we had one of the, the folks who talked to us who said that uh, the communications came, you know, that like basically the night before this vote. Um, and I think you saw, you know, a lot of surprise just all around when last on Thursday, 
basically the commission had been working on a revised set of maps and they voted them down. Um, and really the no vote was led by the mayoral appointees and uh, appointees from council member Joe Borelli, who um, leads the Republican caucus in the council. And were they threatening? I mean, what I, I, I'm trying to picture Menasha Shapiro being very threatening. I guess he can be, but what was the sort of tone that you recall of, of what was said? Um, yeah, well, Menashe is the deputy chief of staff in City Hall. So I think, you know, when you get a message from him, it's, you know, he's he's speaking for the administration. Um, he's in a very high level position. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly the tone that, um, but I think certainly when he communicates with people saying, you know, the mayor doesn't want these maps um, and urges them to vote no, you know, I don't, I didn't get the impression there was any menace involved, but the mayor appointed a lot of, you know, he appointed these people. And I think that's very influential to them. If they're the pe- person who appointed them doesn't like the maps and wants them to vote no. So Joe, as you reported, um, the preliminary maps in July created an Asian majority district in Brooklyn that put Alexa Aviles and Justin Brannon against each other and kept three districts on Staten Island, uh, which is what Joe Borelli wanted. That changed last week. Walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, it might be helpful just to start at the beginning. Like, you know, this is all being done because of the census, which is done every 10 years. It takes the population of New York and, you know, the the city grew by about, I believe it's like 630,000 people, but it wasn't uniform. So, you know, different areas, like, for example, Lincoln Wrestlers District grew a lot. There's been a lot of development in Williamsburg over the last 10 years. Um Julie Wan's district in Queens grew a lot because Long Island City, again, there's a lot of development going on there. And so what the commission has to do is sort of rearrange council districts and redraw them um, to make sure that the 51 members are representing roughly equal numbers of people. Um, And so they're moving boundaries this way and that. And, you know, it's always very involved and every decision is very controversial. and they they essentially go by different guidelines laid out in the charter. Um, and so the commission itself, um, you know, it's ostensibly independent, but it's also there's a political element to this, even in its very structure. Um, the mayor appoints seven members. Um, the council speaker, Adrian Adams, she um, appoints five members and they're each sort of representing one borough. And then. Joe Borelli, the minority caucus leader, appoints three. Um, And so that was sort of the dynamic going into this process, which really kind of kicked off this summer. They did a bunch of public hearings. And then sort of getting to your question, um, in July, the commission voted to release its first set of maps. And so, yes, they they created an Asian majority district. They have a voting rights expert on staff, Dr. Lisa Hanley, who has basically looked at the numbers and said, look, this is a huge community of interest that's divided up into a lot of separate council districts, which dilutes their voting power. And so they needed, you know, they thought they needed to look at creating this district sort of as a standalone. Well, there's only 51 districts. You can't change that. So they had to make some big changes to other council districts. And so in the first set of maps, um, the districts, as you mentioned, of Justin Brannon, who represents Bay Ridge, and Alexa Vilas, who represents mostly parts of Sunset Park, but also Red Hook and a little bit of Diker Heights, um, was combined together. Um, and I think, you know, that whole area of Southern Brooklyn has been a huge 
focus, um, at least sort of in our reporting. Um, and I think with a lot of other people since those July maps, um, I think the Joe Borelli question is a little different. I mean, he has not been shy about communicating what he has wanted out of this process. Um, one of his main goals was keeping Staten Island's three council districts contained on the island. Um, this gets a little complicated, so let me know if you want me to get into the gritty details here. But um, please, please, you know, I think our listeners want it. They want it. Okay. <laughs> so basically, I mentioned earlier that the council districts must be roughly the same size. It's kind of complicated how this works, but if I can explain it briefly, you know, you take the size of the city, you divide it by 51, you come up with an average, right? According to uh, a new state law, the smallest district and the largest district cannot be more than 5% apart in population. So you can sort of, if you keep that tolerance, you can sort of slide it around the average. Um, you could make that 5% um, deviation sort of skew towards the larger side, as long as the average is within it, or you could skew it towards the smaller side. And basically, by keeping these districts in Staten Island, which again, the population grew there um, more slowly than any other borough, the districts were small. They sort of like that 5% slot had been, you know, sort of slid down smaller than a lot of other people thought it should have been. And so that was the whole controversy about Staten Island is the commission seemed to kind of bend over backwards to accommodate this. And a lot of people felt it left less wiggle room to mess with other districts throughout the city. And the commission, you know, I've, I've been talking with the chair, with, uh, with folks on the commission, their spokesperson, and they rightfully point to really a, a huge outpouring of support for this from Staten Islanders, not only Republicans either. Uh, Camilla Harris wrote an op-ed in the Daily News. So there was sort of widespread um, calls for this to happen. I think it really goes to the idea that Borelli and sort of the Republican commissioners have kind of been very well organized from the outset. They had very clear goals um, and they didn't have that many of them. I would say in addition to keeping Staten Island whole, they wanted to keep districts competitive. So they didn't want Republican seats to be diluted. They wanted, for lack of a better term, swing districts, which there are a few in New York, um, to either stay competitive or get more you know, Republican, which we can get into this a little later, but in the preliminary maps, that did happen. Um, there were two districts, basically the new agent majority district and then R.A. Kagan's district did get more Republican. So it increased the chances um, that Republicans could increase their majority or their uh, their seats in the city council. They're still a, a small minority. They now have five seats out of 51. Um, so Anyway, going back to the, the earlier point about Borelli, I think he and the Republicans, um, again, were very organized, and they also had all this public um, outpouring at their backs, which I think was very influential to the commission. Um, I think what we thought was interesting in our reporting was that we didn't hear a lot from the mayor's office uh, throughout this process. Um, and during that first preliminary vote, we saw you know, some 
commissioners who were appointed by Adrian Adams you know, opposed those maps, but yet the mayor's office in Borelli largely supported them. And I think that's kind of been the dynamic this whole time is the votes seem to indicate the Republicans and the mayor's commissioners are kind of on the same page. And then the council's commissioners kind of been on the opposite page. Um, in addition to pitting Brandon and Avilas against each other, there were, a, there were some other changes that speaker Adams really didn't like. Um, there were some changes in Southeast Queens where she uh, represents um, that she felt diluted some of the, the black voting power mm -hmm. down there. Um, there were some questions about the, I believe like the Filipino community in Woodside um, in Queens. There were a lot of complaints about Hell's Kitchen. Um, it had been divided up into three districts. And so you kind of saw her panning these maps while the initial set, while Republicans and the mayor, um, you know, the, the GOP seemed to actively support them and be happy with them. And the mayor just kind of like his commissioners seemed to tacitly support them. Um, and then we kind of saw those dynamics turn on their head with the latest sets of maps on Thursday. One question we have, and um, why would, you know, I understand he's a minority leader, but why would Joe Borelli get three seats to the speaker's five when he represents a much smaller fraction of the council? It just seems like it's a vastly outsized share of political power here, even if there is a concern of having the Republican Democratic split. That's an interesting question. I honestly don't know. You know, all this stuff is dictated in the charter. So that's where this all comes from. Um, so if anyone wanted to change that, it would, you know, they would have to change the city charter. Um, but I, I honestly don't know the origin of where they get the ratios from. Um, but when we first did our first story on this, um, sort of breaking the news that they were going to create this Asian majority district, which had been called for, you know, Citizens Union recognized this in a report way earlier this year. I think it came out in February. They were sort of pointed to this population and said, the commission probably should be looking at this. Um, but when we were first writing about it, I was interviewing a lot of people just familiar with the redistricting process. And a lot of them said, you know, the, the minority caucus, the GOP was in a very good deal-making spot. Um, you need a super majority of the commission to pass whatever maps become final. Um, or even vote them out to sort of in in the case of last week, give them just giving them to the council. You you have to have a supermajority, which is out of the 15 members, you have to have nine voting in favor. So because the speaker has five um, and the mayor has seven, neither have an outright majority, the GOP can kind of like cut deals or for lack of a better word, or align themselves with one side or the other um, to sort of come up with a final set of maps. So they're kind of, despite their small stature, and, and again, I, it is interesting the point you bring up. I think Republicans are outnumbered seven to one by mm -hmm. Democrats in New York. So again, I, I'm not sure where that ratio comes from, but they do kind of have an outsized power in this process, even kind of structurally. Like the, they could, if there's tension between the speaker and the mayor, they can always play the, the difference maker, which I think is interesting. So, Joe, FAQ spoke to Dennis Walcott, and uh, he said he was surprised the commission voted down its own maps. And so given your reporting, were you surprised that the commission voted down <laughs> its own maps? Uh, 
<laughs> to a point I was, and then I wasn't. Um, you know, I had started hearing rumblings about the vote beforehand, but I even I was still surprised. I didn't think it that it would happen that way. Um, and I think for the chair, you know, it would have been weird for him to vote against his own maps. <laughs> and I think the fact that he called the vote and it went this way, like, shows how surprised he was. You know, usually on these sorts of commissions or blue ribbon panels or whatever, even in the council, they often don't want to even call votes until they're whipped and they're sure they're everyone's sort of a yes, because it just, it looks bad. It makes the leader look ineffective sometimes if they, if they don't have the votes. I mean, and I think Dennis calling that vote shows that he, he really did think that they had this. And I think it shows that the interventions from the mayor's office came very late in the process. I mean, this was all sort of set up. They had advised the meeting. There's a lot of procedural stuff that goes in to, to doing a commission like this. You have to give public notice and there's all sorts of rules around that. So it's hard to stop the process on something like that once it's already underway. And just one final question. And again, we spoke about this with Dennis Walcott. There's been calls to grow the council from 51. You know, it expanded due to the charter revision in 1989 to 51. When you think of how much larger in terms of population the city's gotten since then, um, there have been those calls. And Dennis Walcott even said there should be a charter revision to look at that. Do you think this helps democracy in the city or or anything like that? I know it further complicates things, but um, if you want to talk a little bit about what growing the size of the city council could do to benefit the city. If anything, yeah, I, you know, I'm not really sure. I think having more cooks in the kitchen, you know, it obviously sort of brings representation down to a smaller level. I think it also could make a body like the council, you know, harder to corral. It could make it a little more unwieldy if you have even more factions. Um, and I guess, you know, that's what a charter commission would look at. I don't honestly know sort of the average size of a local, like what does an alderman represent in Chicago versus a city council member here? I believe the the average size of a council district, it's well over 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, where that falls as far as the population being represented by one person, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think assembly districts might even be smaller than that in the state. Um, so there is precedent to kind of get tinier. Um, but yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I think it would be interesting to have that question come up in a commission, but I think I, I agree with Dennis. He said this on New York one, uh, on inside city hall this week, but it's kind of irrelevant for this commission. Um, and I think, you know, they, they sort of have a very specific mandate and that, that could be a question for a later day, but. You know, people have also brought up this idea that when I was talking about that 5% deviation, the slot that it used to be 10%. Um, and that actually made it a lot easier to do this because you, it just sort of made the puzzle pieces a little more malleable. You could, you could fit things in a little easier, but it's 5% is the law of the land. Um, so I just, you know, I, I don't think it's super relevant to what's going on in the commission right now. So in just one final question. We have upcoming hearings. They're kind of going through the process again. It'll be a bit more open. Do you predict more interference, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. from City Hall, especially for the next round? I know that the absolute drop dead deadline is December 7th, so there is some time. But in these coming days, when they go through the process again, uh, do you think there will be more uh, non-menacing, but still 
<laughs> e-calls and texts uh, from people within City Hall? I am very curious. I think the, so basically before the, the commission would meet, and this has been done in the past, um, so it's not without precedent, but, you know, when you have a commission like this, it's really, it's a charter mandated thing. Again, there are all these rules uh, that govern these types of bodies. And so if you have a quorum, you have to advise a public meeting. Um, and so what they've done this whole process, and again, it has been done in the past, is they've never met with enough commissioners to have a quorum. And so often they'll break it up by borough or some other grouping. So these mapping sessions where you have staff um, and commissioners are sort of giving input and making suggestions and you have staffers kind of offering their insight um, have all happened behind closed doors. And the thought behind this from the commission was that, um, like many governmental deliberations, you want honest communication from the people making the decisions. And so, you know, for example, that's why we, as journalists, we can't foil an email between the mayor and his chief of staff, Frank Caron, because the sort of laws are laid out to give them um, privacy to kind of be candid with each other. Um, but on Thursday, I think judging by the shock from a lot of observers and even from the chair himself, it was clear that that candid communication was not happening. And so they were, there have been calls to make these meetings public basically from the get-go that some commissioners, I think Citizens Union, some others have always wanted these mapping sessions to be public. Um, and so I think after the vote, the commission kind of thought, well, you know, doing them behind closed doors actually didn't produce very candid discussions because we were all shocked at this vote. So let's bring them out in public. And, you know, I think it'll be super interesting because the commissioners appointed by each faction, by the mayor, Borelli, and by the Speaker Adams, um, you know, will they kind of be will they kind of like communicate and give us as observers more insight into what the mayor wants out of this process, which I think is still very unclear the reasons why he and uh, his administration didn't like these maps. Um, and so will that kind of be teased out by the behavior of all the commissioners or will the, the public nature in the meeting kind of like, dampen that. I think it's an unanswered question. So I'll be tuning in Thursday <laughs> to find out. It's just to repeat, it's Thursday, September 29th, 5 to 8 p.m. And then Friday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. So yeah, mm -hmm. you'll be listening to both. Uh, I don't hold me to listening to all of both, <laughs> but I will be tuning in. <laughs> we want detailed notes, Joe. Yeah, you'll have <laughs> we'll you be report to report back. All of it. <laughs> Oh, well, Joe Anuda from Political, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and we will talk to you soon. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. FAQ. Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. We're now a part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are also a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at thebrick.house. Our hosts this week, Katie Honan and Chrissy Greer, wanted to welcome Dennis Walcott, 
former NY City School Chancellor and CEO of the Queens Public Library, as well as Joe Anuda from Politico. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. Harry Siegel is our executive producer. A special thank you to all of our guests and our listeners like you. Thank you for joining us. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>